0: This episode is brought to you by Denone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at denoneawayfromhome.com.
1: This week on Meet in Three, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating
0: brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors
1: all year round you know, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meetin 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. This is the 270th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a writer and podcaster who has a new Good Drinks book, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to exercise your right to vote. Understand that every single vote matters and that you and I can make a difference. It is not only our right and privilege to vote, but our duty and responsibility as a part of a democracy. Voting is our voice, our way to be heard, and our chance to implement change. So don't hesitate or delay. Now is the time to rock the vote. That is my tip today. Now, I'm excited and my guest joining me, it is Julia Bainbridge. She is a writer, the creator of the Lonely Hour podcast, and the author of Good Drinks, a new book featuring alcohol-free recipes for when you're not drinking for whatever reason. Julia is an editor who has worked at Condé Nast Traveler, Bon Appétit, Yahoo Food, and Atlanta Magazine. She's a James Beard Award-nominated writer, whose stories have been published in Food & Wine, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and more. And her mission is to normalize all kinds of drinking, including not drinking. So hi, Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. That was a mouthful. You
1: got a lot in, in those first two minutes.
0: <laughs> that, I, I, I cram it all in at the beginning. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I always start out with, um, with a lot of information. <laughs> yes, And very good tip. Um, and
1: 200, what is it? 78, did you say? We're at, we're at 270 today. Oh my God. Congratulations. (laughs) I made what? Like 40 episodes of my show. I can't believe that you made
0: so many. Yeah, no, I've been going for a while now. I don't know. I think it just adds up. (laughs) Yes. Well, bravo. I'm very happy to be
1: here. And I guess I should change. You know, I've said my mission is to normalize all kinds of drinking, including not drinking. I don't necessarily want to normalize binge drinking. Maybe I need to edit that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, we'll make a note in that. Um, I don't know how many of my listeners would have gone in that direction with what I said, but you never know. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for, for for chatting with me today. There's so much to talk about. I, I always like to start with my guests about their background and and how how you got into writing and then eventually podcasting and becoming an editor. Um so you wanna take us back a little bit? Oh gosh. Wh which should we start with? Where do I start? Well, just your career, like, did you want to get into journalism? Did you, you know, where did you go to school or yeah. sort of like a little okay. bit about your career path?
1: I flip-flopped a little. Yes. I, I applied, I got into Boston University to study journalism. And then my first semester in, I thought, you know, I don't really want to learn about the history of journalism in a classroom. I want to learn how to report by reporting. Um and so I switched to cultural anthropology. Can't say that that's necessarily been yeah. <laughs> uh, useful career-wise, although in, in my case, it did turn out to be. Um, so as, essentially, I switched. I studied cultural anthropology um, as an undergrad, but I almost say I double majored because you know um, I worked for the school paper. Um, and at Boston University, we covered both campus news and Boston city news. Um, and it was a daily paper, believe it or not. So um, yeah, I can't believe we were full-time students and also getting that paper out um, on people's doorsteps every morning, but we were. Um, and every every um, vacation uh, or rather like summer break, I was doing various internships and kind of you know building up my portfolio, so to speak. Um, and it was through cultural anthropology um, that I learned there was this whole world of food writing, of academic food writing, of looking at a people through the lens of food, you know, through um, what they eat, through what they don't eat, right, through what's taboo. Um, And this is very much tied to our identities. And so that's sort of what gave me the food bug um, also being um, privileged to grow up, you know, traveling a lot, um, and never was a beige food kid, definitely had an open mind, um, and, and was made to eat whatever was put in front of me and did. And, um, so, uh, all of that came together and I kind of thought, okay, I'm going to combine this food thing, uh, with the journalism thing and try to go be the next MFK Fisher. Uh, <laughs> that didn't exactly happen, but it did turn out that, um, that uh, I was able to write about food. Um, So actually went to culinary school after college, to not to, I went to the California Culinary Academy in San Francisco. It was a program that was a little over a year. So I really went to get familiar with technique and terminology, not necessarily to have, you know, the mother sauces drilled into my head and, and go into restaurants. I knew I didn't want to cook for a living, um, but um, just one of those broad strokes so that I could um, be better equipped to, to write about food um, and then move to New York uh, without a job um, and tried to find one <laughs> and well, continue on from there. But yeah, that, that's sort of the very beginnings. Um, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you managed to, to find a job or many, at many great publications. What was your first editorial job? Was that Condé Nast Traveler?
1: That was, and excuse me for the noise you hear, we were saying earlier before we started recording that um, both of us have construction going on in our home. So I'm sorry for some of that you might hear in the background. Let's see, yes. um, You know, speaking of privilege, I was very fortunate to have parents who would help put me in this very expensive city um, and make it such that I could live here and take a $30,000 a year job as an editorial assistant at Connie Nast at the time, right? So um, feel very lucky for being able to be in the center of the publishing world um and um so yeah moved here i think i was writing for i did a couple pieces for nylon for free i had a friend who had gone straight into the publishing world from college and i was a little bit behind because again i went to um culinary school so about you know a little over a year behind her and so um i think she was an editorial assistant there and got me a couple assignments that i did for free online and just you know tried to build some recent uh you know clips and eventually, I don't know how exactly it happened. I think I knew someone who knew Nancy Navagrad, who was then the editor in chief of um, Travel and Leisure and my resume, uh, you know, which was then owned by Amex, which also owned food and wine. So my resume floated over there um, and it was clear that I had an interest in food. And so um, met with the people there and got my first gig, which was a freelance position working on their cocktail guide that year. Um, and that was great. My first bosses were, were Kate Crater and the great Jim Meehan, who was working on the cocktail guide at that time. So wow. um, yeah. yeah, then that ended. I got along with the staff very well, but there were no junior level positions open at the time. Um, and so just um, continued to kind of network and f- moved uh, kind of laterally, if you will, to another editor- editorial assistant position over at Conde Nas Traveler. Uh, and then stayed in the, the Conde Nast for a little while, moving on to Bon Appetit from there. Um, and uh, yeah, on and on Yahoo Food, Atlanta Magazine. Um, and uh, that's it. Yeah, what I, I'm happy to answer any other specific questions. It's hard yeah, to
0: know. <laughs> no, I know you, you have so much experience. I now,
1: I reflect on it. I'm like, yeah, when did I, you know, I can't even quite remember exactly how things happened. I used to have this, uh, my spiel ready to go, but um, my age is showing. <laughs> No, you you still
0: got it, <laughs> but so now now you're are you you're freelance. You're not. When was the last time you were in house with a publication? Was that with um, uh, Atlanta Magazine? Yes, it was. Okay. Um, so I was the
1: food editor of Atlanta Magazine for a couple years, um, and then got this book deal and went off to do research for that, and returned home to New York, which was kind of always the plan. Um, uh, that I would be in Atlanta for two years and then return to New York. And and we can discuss that. I have some mixed feelings about the decisions I made around then, but I must say Atlanta magazine was, was probably the favorite job I've had in my career so far. And um, what a team there. And, uh, I can go into that if you're interested, but yes, uh, currently freelance, um, and kind of in a transition moment. And I don't know how much of, of this will, you know, apply to your audience, but I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm writing pretty seldom. I'm writing when something really grabs me or when I have the opportunity, um, pretty much, you know, want to continue to cover this non-alcoholic drink space. And then here and there write profiles, um, when I can, which, um, for me and the way I do it, uh, it takes a long time and isn't necessarily the most cost-effective way of working. So, you know, definitely I look at the writing I do um, in the non out space as, as kind of part of the mission that I'm on. And then any of the other food writing is really out of um, the want to do it and the want to, you know, get better at this craft and, and share great stories. But it's not the thing that's necessarily paying the bills. Um, and I think that's something that shifted over the course of my time in the media world, that um, in my opinion, it's really no longer a sustainable full-time way to make a living. Um, so yeah, not to be a downer, but I, I, sort of write um, here and there. And, um, I do right now all sorts of kind of odd jobs behind the scenes that I don't speakerphone a ton or put a speakerphone <laughs> to a ton that are getting me by, but, um, am, am kind of pivoting my career pretty, pretty soon onto something else full time. I'm still kind of, figuring out exactly what that will look like, but I can speak in, in broad strokes, um, if you care to.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, mean, I want, I, as much as you want to share, I think we, um, you, uh, you know, you've, you've transitioned a bit, or, but you've stuck with the food and beverage industry as, as your focus. I think we should, let's talk a little bit about this, Beautiful book you have that I have here on my desk, and uh, I'll I'll start with my question for my last guest. So I had on episode 269 Leah Cohn. She's the chef and owner of Pig and Cow and of Piggyback NYC. She's a Top Chef alum and the author of a new book, Lemongrass and Lime: Southeast Asian Cooking at Home. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I also have that here. I'm like, I got I, my books. I keep piling up with amazing books in this, this little studio apartment I have. <laughs> but, um, so her question is, why did you decide to write a non-alcoholic book? And are there any low recipes in the book that don't skip on the flavor? Um, she did note her husband doesn't drink and that she does find um, sometimes non-alcoholic drinks are an afterthought when she, she's ordered them.
1: I bet. Well, Leah, I will say none of the drinks skips on flavor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know offhand which are locale because I did not have that in mind when making this book. You know, this book is really a celebration of all the delicious stuff there is to drink that doesn't have alcohol. And it is not necessarily for people who have uh, removed alcohol from their lives for fitness reasons. uh, in terms of you know weight mm-hmm. loss or whatever. Um, I think some of the recipes uh, naturally are locale. Let me see off the top of my head. Probably the fizzy hop tea, which is really flavored using hops and tea, and there's a little simple syrup you can add if you want, but you can also remove it if you are a fan of bitterness and that, that hoppiness and don't really need to balance it back a little with sweetness. Um, I would say, I mean, tonic has some calories in it, but there's one recipe, the cover recipe actually, which is one of my favorite and one of the simplest. Um, you do have to find verjus, but it's really just equal parts verjus, tonic water and soda water. So that tonic gets cut a little bit. You still get a little bit of that like quinine bitterness, but, um, but uh, it's cut a little with just water, which of course um, is low-cal um let me see I'm sure there are others um but those are the first two that come to yeah. mind
0: yeah no I've been I've I've been looking through the book and getting inspired to what drinks I want to make at home and I love that you have the, also the different uh you note how complicated it is to make certain drinks um from so
1: yeah I mean I think I yeah I put the commitment level mm-hmm. uh sort of key on there because I know that I can be a relatively lazy home cook sometimes, you know, and sometimes I'm more ambitious. Um, But I think, you know, I I have been frustrated sometimes with cookbooks that package things, meaning, you know, either the way the uh, recipe title is written or uh, the head note telling me it's going to be quick and easy. And so i you know, on a Tuesday night, I'm home from work. um, And then I read the recipe and there are two sub recipes. (laughs) And even if one of those is a vinaigrette, like I don't necessarily want to start making that at seven o'clock when I'm hungry on a Tuesday. Um, So with the key, you know, you're able to see without you know, investing and in reading the full page, kind of what you might be getting into in terms of labor. So if you want kind of a quick fix, you can go with a level one and then push a level four to the weekend. And I like some of the level fours. I mean, I really like rolling my sleeves up and and um, cooking, you know, kind of cooking mm-hmm. these drinks, um, which like I also think it anoints them to proper Drinks that like, yeah, no, there's skill and labor involved in producing these things. And that's what's going to get you complexity of flavor. You know, that's what's going to get you something that's not just a syrup and soda.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I feel you and I connected about non-alcoholic drinks maybe a couple of years ago as someone myself who doesn't drink. And I I found I was, you know, my typical order was water or club soda. <laughs> um and uh, this this book is is has so many um, exciting and unusual recipes that so why don't we talk a bit about um, like how did you go about the process of creating the book? Uh, what recipes you decide to put in it? And why did you think it was important um, to do a non alcoholic drinks book at this at this time? Yeah. Okay, let's see. I know, that's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: think that, um, I mean, the drinks world itself was moving beyond syrups and sodas, right? And I really wanted to capture that. So I think the reason for the book is um, serendipitously, I removed alcohol from my life at a time when more energy was being put into this category. I almost struggle with, you know, the term author, you know, or that I wrote this book because I kind of see it like I put it together. It's very much a compendium and very much rests on the work of the experts, right, um, right. of the people who have been working with liquid, <laughs> you know, for over a decade behind the bar, doing it day in, day out. Um, but yes, I did remove alcohol from my life. And, you know, if I was out at bars and restaurants with friends and looking for things to drink that, you know, weren't just water And weren't soda. Um, And I found that, oh my gosh, there's actually a lot of stuff. And oh my gosh, some of these drinks have names. And oh my gosh, they are taking up real estate on menus right next to the, you know, quote unquote, regular cocktails. And so there was this new energy and this new kind of acceptance. And I really wanted to highlight that um, for people who maybe live in places where that wasn't going on yet. Um, And Put it together in this book. Make it look really sexy. Make it look like a party, and just celebrate all the delicious stuff there is finally to drink. Um, for those people like you um, who m- may have—and you can speak to this yourself—maybe um, I'm wrong, but kind of have felt like a second-class citizen at times <laughs> when you're <laughs> when you've been out at bars and restaurants and you're given, you know, whatever juices and syrups have already been. Um, prepped for the regular cocktails and you, they're just kind of thrown together and you get something that's too sweet, right? And that's the, that's yeah. the bad rap that this category of drinks gets um, being too sweet because it's often been an afterthought, right?
0: Yeah. I've, I've, I've generally speaking have found um, non-alcoholic drinks or mocktails or whatever we want to call them um, to be a bit disappointing when I've just um, had bartenders, like make me a drink um, being that they've come out too sweet or too sour or, and also it's uh, when it's you're then um, I'm paying extra money for something that I don't feel I necessarily need. Maybe it's also the calorie thing. Like I don't feel like I need it to complete my experience. So I, I, I been sticking mostly with club soda. I have to say though, I have over the years had some, Exceptional non-alcoholic drinks. One one that stands out, I I talked about before with people is um, I was in London and I went to the Clove Club and they made me um, a drink that had a smokiness to it with melon. Something they did mm. and it had it was so complex and interesting. I think about it all the time. So, um, yeah,
1: the UK's ahead of us in this realm. Uh, you know, I think it's we're still kind of in the first or or maybe moving toward the second inning of all this. So, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how things shake out. Um, yeah.
0: cuz we but- did this road trip across the US, which is pretty cool, I think. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, um, I I was able to do research this way. So I thought, why not? I mean, you know, it's, it's stuff was not just going on in New York and LA. Um, There are, you know, great bartenders um, who are thinking about people who don't drink uh, all over the place, you know, Mm -hmm. so I got in my car and, and drove around for a while and just cast a really wide net and met with a bunch of people and tasted and talked and gathered recipes and um, brought them all back to my kitchen in Brooklyn and then tested the heck out of them and had them cross tested as well and um, and tried to make them as home cook friendly as possible. Um, I'm sure some of the level fours, you know, people won't actually make, although I have, some people have reached out to me on Twitter and say they are making the pine needle <laughs> champagne. Yeah. From um, so, you know, who knows, but um, I, you know, part of some of the recipes that are really labor intensive are there to just show you like how far things are being pushed and, and where this category can go. Um, but yeah, some, the majority of them um, were tested definitely with home cooks, actually making them in mind. And, um, and what yeah. else i forget the other piece of the question yeah well, i just, there, I just to, it to exist i mean the last book that was similar um that i saw on the market was called pregatini's and i think that sold very well but i think it's time for for something fresh <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it's it's I I love um, the photos of the drinks as well. They whether you make them or not, just looking at them, (laughs) um, they're very appealing. Yeah, the vision
1: was was a huge part of this and, you know, was part of even the proposal because I wanted to be sure. Um, that we were going to be able to execute it the way we wanted to. And it's funny, Mike Lee, um, who I hired to help design this book, who worked with me when we were at Bon Appetit, um, got kind of started mood boarding this from my closet, from how I dress. Um, so well,
0: I was going to ask you about this. It was last week you were posting those amazing photos of you in your fashion looking comparing to the drink it was so clever clever and well done oh thanks yeah that was just a little fun so this is um sherry's referring
1: to just a little instagram campaign if you will (laughs) yeah Um, Little series of photos. Um, It really came about organically because um, I'm a fan of Mara Hoffman, who's a designer. I feel like her collections have just been getting better and better over the years. And it was what last summer, I think, when the fall 2020 collection first dropped on Vogue.com. So they do these slideshows. And my jaw was on the floor because I thought, oh my God, like these are the drinks. Like so many of these items look just like the drinks in the book. I mean, we had already shot the book. Right. So immediately I put everything down at my desk and put together a document, like pairing the unedited shots of the drinks with some of those items that I saw and sent it over to Mara Hoffman as a proposal saying, Hey, you know, this is too much fun. Could we maybe collaborate in some way? So they loaned me some items to, to wear, um, and photograph and just have some fun. And, you know, it's fun landing on a page and seeing a photo of the drink and swiping and, and, um, seeing, that it's come to life in a different way. I mean, especially the the what honeydew, avocado, agua fresca, the color of that strapless dress that they made was so that perfect green. So it was just fun, you know, and I had planned it before um, COVID hit and part of me struggled with um, moving forward with it because I thought, God, this is so frivolous, you know, Quite frankly, part of me struggles with promoting, you know, a book like this in this time because fancy um, food and drink just, it feels in in the 2020 context um, kind of silly. But, you know, th- this, I do believe in the mission of this book and, and also Mara Hoffman is a small independent designer to my knowledge. Um, and I think they're, they're, they were um, hit kind of hard by the pandemic, uh, lost a good percentage of their staff. And so, if that fun little series helped entertain some people, helped drive some sales to Mara Hoffman and also my book, then, then great. I'm glad I went ahead with it.
0: <laughs> I think it was fabulous. I, I mean, as a PR person, as, as someone who doesn't drink like all of the above, I, I give it, I give it a 10. Thank <laughs> you. <give> it Eleven. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't
1: be so open about my internal monologue. Then. <laughs> yeah, no, it
0: was, it was really, it was really well done. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah, you should be proud of it and clever Thanks. so. Thanks. Um, before we take a break, let's talk a little bit about your podcast because I think 40 episodes is uh, an impressive amount of of shows and I've listened to several of them and I just want to know like The Lonely Hour, how did you come up with that concept and and why why was that is that the the theme of your of your podcast?
1: Yeah, again, another thing that interesting in, in 2020, you know, <laughs> we could look at it a little differently and it might it might shift, you know, given whatever, you know, the needs we will have coming out of this. But I launched the Lonely Hour in 2016. So this was before obviously COVID hit. It was also before former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy first called loneliness an epidemic. Uh, this was before like the Cigna and BBC and Kaiser loneliness surveys were published. And I think, um, I think it had been bouncing around in me for a while. I didn't necessarily want to get into podcasting. It was more that I really wanted to explore this topic. um, And I thought, on what platform would it best be explored? And it was really important to me that people hear others um, talking about this, that it be intimate in that way, but also not see them necessarily, because we come with a whole other host of feelings when, you know, video's involved. So I guess I just think... It's about sort of, um, it's definitely about, you know, the everyday loneliness that is part of the human experience, right? So I'm not focusing on chronic loneliness. That's, the, and although I do have some thoughts there, and and that's where I wonder, should my, you know, work in the future shift more towards um, sort of that that need? But, you know, the show itself um, is very much not about putting loneliness in the problem box. I think that's something that, you um, you know, I bristled at when then these loneliness surveys were published. A lot of the media was reporting on this epidemic. Very few people had attached themselves to this topic of loneliness. So if you want to get a sound bite and you do a quick Google because you're moving fast as a reporter, my name shows up when you Google loneliness. <laughs> so a lot of people came to me, one saying, you know, are you a loneliness You know, loneliness expert, Julia Bainbridge, which is not the case. I'm not a cognitive neuroscientist. I'm not a sociologist. Um, I have Been a storyteller of this stuff. And maybe if I made the show the way I do by the time I'm 80, we could call me an expert. But I'm not an expert now. I'm sort of um another listener in a way. I'm cataloging all these people's experiences with loneliness so that we better understand it and get more comfortable with it. But another thing I would often be asked is, you know, what are what are a few ways to combat loneliness. And um, that's not what I'm trying to do. I think, you know, loneliness is endemic to being human, but we live in a culture where that's taboo, right? The admission of loneliness, um, you know, both feels and perhaps is perceived as some kind of failure. Like if you were a more decent person or or, uh, if you were somehow more likable or less broken, you would have a tribe. You know, what does it say about you if you don't? And I think we kind of um, have to rehabilitate loneliness in order not to feel so lonely. So I decided, again, it wasn't something I was going to put in the problem box. It's entirely normal. So, you know, could I represent that truth, um, through storytelling? Could I put this big thing into small approachable packages, you know, in these episodes? And could there even be joy and humor in the mix, you know, as is true to life? And, um, and um, that's that's what I'm trying to do. But there's there's another piece of that work that I that I um, think I could also do. But the show exists, you know, in a very particular way, which is just to catalog people's experiences with loneliness and solitude, and and that's it. It could it could exist that way until the end of
0: time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I give you a lot of credit for for all of your work and that you dive into these different subjects and topics. And I was, uh, I last listened to um, your podcast. You had Kimberly Chow on, Mm, it was was a, it was a COVID period podcast. So um, with lots, and there were lots of people on this episode I knew you had Howie Kahn and um, it was, it was really well done. And just um, documenting this time we're going through, which is, no one saw this coming, but it's, uh, it's certainly, certainly, um, a lonely period maybe for people who maybe weren't in that category before or saw it differently, I would say.
1: Yeah. I, um, I struggled with what to do around that because, and I struggle with what to do in general in terms of what I produce right now because there's so much noise out there. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, But my listeners, who luckily are very engaged, were really asking for something from me, um, and I thought, what would make the most sense? Um, what would still be true to the DNA of this show? Um, and the first episode strayed a bit from that and did um, address some some needs in terms of you know I spoke with a counselor to better understand you know how this is operating and maybe give some tips for um, combating loneliness. But then for much of the rest of the season, uh, mini season, kind of went back to just chronicling um, how this is playing out and people's lives and um and as you heard with kim you know and as i said earlier there is also joy and humor in the mix with all these things that's how life is right these things Mm -hmm. can be happening in tandem with each other and and you know a lot of people because i i ended up going to people who are um kind of in my circle uh in in or in one of my circles, right, Um, because this was still relatively early on in the pandemic, and I didn't feel comfortable um, asking people to give of their time unless I knew them, which as kind of a reporter is not normally how I would go about things. But um, this has been such a difficult time for so many that, you know, on the one end, I would like to know what it looked like, um, for a chef at that time. Right. And to ask a chef to be recording his or her days, day in and day out as all the people who, um, you know, recorded those diaries for me did, but it felt, um, not quite right given what happened to the industry, um, and same thing with, with other people. So I, I just felt, um, I felt in an odd way, it was only appropriate to ask people I knew, um, to engage in this with me.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I I appreciated listening to that episode. And uh, what's great about your podcast and my podcast is they're in the archives that we can go back to and listen to. (laughs) Yeah. So um,
1: Except I have 40 or however many and not 200 some odd. But as you know from listening, my show is is highly edited and, you know, those diaries came together. Yes, it was, say, 20 minute episodes, but those were weeks of recordings. Um, So putting together one episode takes a lot of work on the back end.
0: so, oh sure, yeah. I'd be exhausted if I had made two hundred. <laughs> I, 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 I admire the edits and the edited shows. My show over here, we it's a it's a raw take, so <laughs> yeah, a little of value. But um, and on that note, let's take a little break, and we'll come back, and we will have my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. We'll follow up with my solo dining experience and then the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. Deneau North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Deneau North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better for your business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at denoneawayfromhome.com Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Julia Bainbridge. She's a writer. She's the creator of the Lonely Hour podcast and the author of Good Drinks, a new book featuring alcohol-free recipes. So Julia, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference such as chocolate or vanilla. Ooh, do I have to explain why? No, it's a speed round. So you can, I mean, you could just go through them fast or sometimes, I don't know, everyone plays it a little differently. Sometimes they feel the need to give explanations. (laughs) Okay. Ooh, my heart rate just went
1: up a little bit. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Okay.
0: Eat in or eat out?
1: Well, is it twenty twenty? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's see, this is you can interpret um, this, however, however you feel fit. It is twenty twenty, though. <laughs> if,
1: um, uh, I'm going to eat in, meaning at home. <laughs> okay.
0: Now, wine, beer, cocktail, non-alcoholic beverage, or champagne? Non-alcoholic beverage. Okay. Now, this is, the I've always, I have been saying mocktail because it rhymes with cocktail and it comes off the tongue a little smoother. But from now on, I'm going to say that because I know the term mocktail isn't loved by everyone.
1: You but know, I, it bothers me less than it bothers others. I, I understand both sides of the story. So you're safe with me.
0: Yeah. It doesn't bother me for some reason at all. And so, but yeah, um, there's a lot of more fun names, I guess, for non-alcoholic drinks these days. So Maybe I'll just switch it up every week. <laughs> okay. So, a
1: lot to choose from.
0: Yes. There's a lot true. of
1: anxiety over that endeavor, which is why I ended up just calling it the book Good Drinks. But with, yes. that would not be fair in a bar. Um, but uh, yeah, I sort of skirted that whole issue. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Okay. We'll keep going. Okay. Tasting menu or a la carte? Mm, I'll say a la carte.
1: Small plates or large plates? Large plates. We're entering into winter. I'm just wanting like a big plate that I choose in front of me. And uh,
0: <laughs> that's how I'm feeling. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> okay. Communal table or chef's counter? Hmm. Chef's counter. Tipping or
1: all-inclusive charge? Oh, God. Um... You know, I feel like I haven't done my due diligence in terms of going down the rabbit hole and on all, all the takes on what is right or wrong, but why don't I, why don't I say all inclusive? Okay. Writing or podcasting. Writing or podcasting? Yes. Wow. That's a tough one.
0: I stumped you.
1: Oh, wow. Um, You know what? Today I'm going to say podcasting. Okay,
0: fair. I've got three more. I've got Club Bainbridge dancing or karaoke. Club Bainbridge all the way. Another fun thing you did.
1: (laughs) It's a zero. It's there's there's you're never at capacity. Literally everyone is invited. (laughs)
0: Love it. Okay, cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn? Brooklyn. Awesome. That's the game. All right. Did I pass? You passed. <laughs> you, you 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 with you get an opportunity now to talk some industry news with me. Great. <laughs> no. Great. Great. Um uh great prize, but um yeah, that was no, fun.
1: What is going on? What is the industry news we shall discuss?
0: So, I had two articles but um, I think the one that we'll talk about first, if we'll see if we get to the second, is in the, uh, 750 Daily, Why the Alcohol-Free Category is Thriving. Many assumed the pandemic would end the sober curious movement. They were wrong. And this was by Joshua M. Bernstein. And you are quoted in this article, so I know you're familiar with it. <laughs> yes. What should um, we say about it? Well I think it's interesting I mean I'm I think you know this I've been working with um, John Weissman of Curious elixirs and and conversations with him and he's also in this article um, mm-hmm. tell talking about how sales have been way up for curious elixirs so I wasn't surprised where I read this um, to see that it's it's a it's you know not just his company. But it is interesting because I think some people with the pandemic were uh, resorting to alcohol. And so, not surprised there's uh, great alcohol sales going on. But the fact that there's a, a sober world and people are, you know, drinking non alcoholic beverages and um, taking care of their health. And um, it's, you know, maybe it's maybe it is surprising to some people that this is. Uh, the case,
1: yeah, I um, I don't know. I mean, I maybe Josh found some. I know he referenced some data, which I I have to wrap my head around. But it, to my knowledge, there's little to no like data yet on trends toward moderation or abstinence this year. You know, so discussing it kind of relies on anecdotal analyses. Of, of course, in his piece, he's showing that these products have been selling, so that's definitely one data point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, I actually did a story, um, on this kind of, uh, on, I talked to, I don't know, 50 some odd people between the ages of 20 and 60, and they had all decided to reduce or stop alcohol consumption during this time. Um, some just wanted to be their fittest, you know, physically and mentally. Some wanted to cut down on costs, um some had always wondered if they drank too much and quarantine became an opportune time to explore sobriety, right? Like you have no awkward social encounters if, if you know, it's awkward for you to discuss your drinking because there are not social encounters. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how, you know, if, if this will change the way America drinks in any meaningful way long-term, but, you know, at the, I'm, I'm watching it. It's interesting for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He, I I agree. And he did note um, some, you know, sales increase with some companies. He even, he noted um, one thing I thought interesting just with shipping nationwide, that it's, there's no regulations when it comes down to non-alcoholic drinks. So it's a little easier to get products places.
1: Right. um, Yeah.
0: As a point of this. And, you know, what's interesting in this is I, I, there are so many products out there that I didn't know about that I'm now curious about. I, I, the category has just really expanded.
1: (laughs) It really has. Yeah. So much has come onto the market since the time that I wrote the book. I almost, you know, um, wish it weren't the case so that I could have had a whole section on products. Right. Because, um, I've sort of made it my business to, Import bottles that aren't yet in the U.S. and I'm trying to find all the the good stuff because it's great. Like you know, for the drinks in in my book, yeah, there are you know, for people like me who might enjoy um, cooking and building these things from scratch, great. But you know, some people don't want to do that and don't drink and they want something bitter or complex. They want something they can just open and pour um, and deliver on that experience. So it's so great that there are a bunch of these products now that can do that. Also for bartenders to be able to lean on a non-alcoholic bar without, you know, putting in the labor to build so much, um, from scratch in the, for their non-alc drink program. It's, it's great.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, and I don't know, your, your sequel to your book. You can,
1: (laughs) the well, great So Derek Brown, um, who has the Columbia Room in, in D.C., is working on a non-alc uh, drinks book that will come out in 2021. And um, he has recipes in there, but also um, will have a lot of product recommendations. So um, I'm not sure what he's calling it yet, but keep an eye out for that. Okay.
0: Well, I will. And we know good drinks is taken.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good drinks is taken. But I continue to, you know, on my uh, social channels, you know, uh, talk about all the products that uh, I'm tasting and, and share Intel. So, um, you know, you can wait until 2021 for Derek's sort of uh, official uh, in print uh, work. But in the meantime, I'm talking about this stuff all the time. In fact, right now I'm drinking something called Betera, B-E-T-E-R-A, that um, I don't even know if it's like officially out, but this guy, Paul, um, Paul, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, Eschbach, Uh, E-S-C-H-B-A-C-E-H. I think he was a former chef for Jean-Georges, and he's making these bottled non-alc drinks. And this one is an elderflower lime.
0: Mm, sounds
1: nice. Yeah, it is nice. And there are two other flavors that he's made there in my fridge chilling for the tasting, but I think he just uh, spent eight months Brewing and bottling and completed their first manufactured production run around 6,000 gallons, I think you said. So, um, you know, I guess we'll be seeing
0: it soon. But Terra, I'm into All it. Right. I'll be on the lookout because I yeah. haven't heard of it till now. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to segue into my solo dining experience. So, this week it's at Besu. So, here's the rundown. The location, 5 Bleecker Street, Noho, New York City. The concept, it's a modern take on everyday Japanese comfort food. The owner is Maiko Kiyogoku, hope I'm saying that correct, and the chef is Emily Ewan. So why did I go? Well, I had been to Basu once before, but I heard they had a really great brunch and I wanted to go down there and support them. So my experience, This past weekend on Sunday, uh, I went down there, I got a late reservation, Uh, I was seated um, at a table outside. They are doing indoor dining at 25%, but I was at an outdoor two-top under their little tent. Um, They had the menu on a QR code that I scanned on my phone. I got uh, some recommendations from the server before I ordered, and then I just enjoyed my solo meal. So what did I get? I went with the Fried Chicken Karaj sando, which is a sandwich with spicy mayo and pickles and a Martin's potato roll. And I got Kukicha green tea. So my take, super delicious. I really, I was like craving like a hearty sandwich. So it was, it really hit the spot, very flavorful. And the tea was was really lovely. Um, It was, you know, it's getting a little chilly in New York. So it's nice to have that to warm me up a little bit. The ambiance, it's, um, the dining room is a very intimate space. And as I said, they're at 25% capacity indoors. And then outdoors, they have about 10 tables. i say it's perfect for brunch or dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit, New York Magazine's Grub Street has included their fried chicken on their absolute best fried chicken list in New York in 2019. And also, Besu has a location at the Time Out Market in Dumbo, Brooklyn. So, if you're out there, you could check it out there versus being in NoHo in New York City. So, personal fun fact um, afterwards, I met up with my friend Pichayong, who's a well known pastry chef. He was in the city, and uh, we had some cake over at Harb's, which wasn't too far away. Uh, the cost of this meal was $19, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is besu.nyc.com, and that's B-E-S-S-O-U dot N-Y-C. So there we go. Yum. Yeah. Have, have you been
1: there before, Julia? I have not, but Japanese fried chicken is hard to compete with.
0: Um, <laughs> Seriously. I
1: luckily, yeah, I have a, um, my, one of my brothers married a uh, Japanese woman born and raised in Tokyo, and um, I, so I, she's a great cook, and I luckily have access to <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Good for you. Good the stuff. <laughs> including nabe, actually, this wonderful hearty stew um, that last Thanksgiving we had nabe instead of turkey. Oh, wow. And I think Thank this you. Thanksgiving, I'm, um, I'm curious about your plans, but I you know, am not going anywhere. And my boyfriend, who is a chef and who is Mexican, I think we're going to make turkey tamales and maybe drop them off to some friends who are stranded here in New York for the holidays. So um, wow, that sounds... let me know if you need some that tamales. Is. I just put I'm, in my, uh, my, uh, reservation for a heritage, a big, 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 big bird from heritage
0: foods. Um, wow. Amazing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what my plans are as of now. <laughs> it's sneaking up on us
1: though. Okay. Well, keep me posted. If you need tamales, we plant, we're going to be the, the tamales.
0: Wow. Fairy. I will, tamales. I'll let you know. It sounds, sounds <laughs> awesome. Good for you for doing that. So, um, okay, so let's do the final question. So my next guest is Manit Chowhoun. She is the president and partner of Morph Hospitality Group, which includes Chowhound Ale and Masala House, Tansua, Chattable, and The Mockingbird, all in Nashville. She is a judge on Food Network's Chopped. She is also the author of a new book called Chat, which is recipes from the kitchens, markets, and railways of India. She co-wrote that with Jody Eddy, who's been on my show, and she is just fabulous. So, uh, Julia, what would you like to ask Manit? I mean, I
1: have so many questions for Manit um, about the particulars of the recipes, which all look so delicious. I've been... Um... I don't yet have a copy myself, but she's really been on that promotional trail and I've seen Mm -hmm. seen a lot of the recipes. So I think actually that's my question as someone who also has a book out right now is how, and I'm sorry for the screaming baby uh, down the hall, um, how has promoting a book in this time been going? Like, you know, we can't do um, a tour or in-person events like we might have um, planned or like our, you know, publishing houses, PR teams know how to do. Um, so how, how has, um, that been going for her and, um, or whichever one she wants to answer, what was the process like co-writing, um, a book? How did that work for her? Who did what parts and, um, yeah, would she do, would she co-write again, or would she do it herself? I have so many questions, but yeah, promoting the book in the in COVID times and yeah. uh, and co-writing, how that process was like.
0: Yeah, no, there I'll, I'll ask them both, and I don't know. Jody may come on the show with her. We're seeing cool. we're seeing if we could coordinate that too. Um, but if um, I I will find out how they work together because I am I'm always curious about that with. Co-authors, or you know, who does what, and and, <laughs> and yeah, there's no
1: one way to do it. I mean, I've I've spoken to a number of people who have co-authored books, and um, they all have different approaches. So I'm just curious how it worked with them. I mean, I Jody's really a pro, and I think she's done that a, a, a good bunch. So um, yeah, we sure had a process set before she went in, but yeah, just curious how it worked for them.
0: Well, awesome, I will find out and. Just big congratulations to you. I'm impressed with everything that you've done in your career and everything now that you are doing between the podcast, between the book, between between your fashion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I might honestly, so the thing I was alluding to before um, is that I might be going back to school. I'm thinking about um, kind of bolstering the loneliness uh, work by um, kind of formalizing my my knowledge around the human, uh, what mind and heart, shall we say, um, and possibly getting a masters in social work um, or or some kind of related psych degree and and going in that direction. So we'll see. Maybe we can talk in a few years and see if I actually did it.
0: <laughs> I would. I would love. We were, definitely we can have a follow up, and that's exciting and good for you. i I I admire that you 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 just you it's not like you just have, you have ideas or you have things that interest you and then you pursue them. And it's, um, it's, it's great. I think it's, it's admirable. So um, we'll see. We'll, we'll check in. I'll check in with you whenever a couple years, couple months <laughs> <laughs> where you're at. Yes. <laughs> so um, thank you. And um Till, uh, and I'll keep you posted on Thanksgiving as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, please do. Tamales coming your way if you want them. Um, and otherwise, let's just keep – let me know what good drinks you have um, as you're out on your solo dining experiences. I mean, I know you report on on beverages when you have them, but I'm always looking for new stuff. So, um,
0: yeah, keep doing I that. I will. I will. I have noticed over the years that there's more – more exciting options and that yeah it's it depends i guess on my mood a bit whether i decide to to get a non-alcoholic drink but i will let you know if i come across anything that's um newsworthy (laughs) great
1: okay sherry thanks so much for having me
0: so my guest today has been julia bainbridge she is a writer, the creator of the Lonely Hour podcast, and the author of Good Drinks, a new book featuring alcohol-free recipes for when you're not drinking for whatever reason. Her website is juliabainbridge.com, and you can follow her on social media at juliabainbridge. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are bayerpublicrelations.com, sherrybayer.com, and allintheindustry.com. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Julia. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'm taking next week off, so we'll be back with a new show on November 11th. Till then, be safe and be well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye.